We've all heard the story of how maple syrup is made. Those brave New Englanders who get out in the snow and the cold of winter to uh, drain the sap from the maple trees into big buckets and then take it to boil and boil and boil it down until it becomes that sweet, wonderful tasting maple syrup that we so enjoy on our pancakes and our waffles. Well, I'm using that metaphor today to um, talk about the spiritual life, how it is through our lifetimes that we boil down till we come to the sweet essence of what it is that really sustains us and makes us, um, gives meaning to our lives. I was thinking, when I was thinking of boiling things down, of when my grandson visited us uh, a couple of years ago, he was a sophomore in, high, in college and doing an internship in Santa Fe, and he stayed with my husband and I for about six weeks. And the, uh, he, it was apricot season, and he got intrigued by all the apricots falling on our driveway and decided he wanted to make apricot jam from them. So I said, you can use my kitchen all you want to. I, I'm not much of a person to preserve things and can, but you're certainly welcome to it as long as you clean up afterwards. So he got busy and bought all the right jars and learned the technique and began. And he made beautiful jams, plum and apricot, and he even canned um, green chili to take back to his college friends to see uh, have a little taste of New Mexico. I told him uh, that when he people ask where he learned to can and preserve it, He'd tell them at Grandma's house, and he didn't necessarily have to tell them that Grandma doesn't do those things, but it was just at her house. The little joke between the two of us. The process of boiling down something to a small amount, to an, the essence of its sweetness, is very much like finding a coherent and meaningful life. When D.H. Lawrence was a college student, his minister from home was trying to convert him to make sure that he was a good Christian. D.H. Lawrence wrote to him and said, I think it takes a lifetime that you keep shaping, finding what it is that is meaningful at one point and not at another and until you've gone through the modifications of your beliefs that fit you, not any one necessary religion that's handed to you. I thought when I read that that D.H. Lawrence would have made a good Unitarian Universalist. I never heard that he was, but he spoke very much as I do when someone asks what are these Unitarian Universalists? And I say that um, we don't hand our people one belief, but we expose them to many beliefs and expect that the people um, do the work on their, their own as well as through the church of reading, thinking, talking, listening, picking up the things that resonate with the inner part of themselves. 
things they can use to live by. And in that way, we create our own individual idea of the religion. I grew up in a little Methodist church in a small town in mid-state Illinois, near Springfield. It was a wonderful little church. I love that church. And it gave me so many things. Certainly, it gave me a loving community. And it gave me a sense of reverence and a calling to promote justice in the world. I wanted to be a Methodist minister, but I was told when I was just a little girl that girls didn't do that. So I became a teacher instead. But it wasn't until years later that the Unitarian Universalists began welcoming women into their ministry, and in fact, in the 70s, um, that I was able to go to seminary and realize that I was welcome. I ask lots of questions of my Methodist minister. What The virgin birth, how can you explain that? And he didn't very well. And the resurrection just puzzled me as a child, and he couldn't really respond to that very well either. And what is it that, why is it we believe that people who've never even heard of Christ are doomed? It took me a good long while after that before I gave up on heaven and hell altogether. When I first became a Unitarian Universalist more than 50 years ago, I was elated and also terrified. This freedom Freedom to think for oneself was so welcome to me, but it was also a challenge. Thomas Jefferson went through the process of trying to find what he really believed in the Christian religion and what he just couldn't accept. So he wrote a Bible of his own. Um, Seems like that would be fitting for Jefferson. He took our Bible, the familiar Bible, and cut huge sections out of it that didn't resonate with him. He boiled down the Bible, you could say, um, something that would be declared a heresy, perhaps. But um, I don't think that bothered Jefferson. He was looking for the authentic, what rang true for him, and he just left out those things I mentioned that didn't make sense to me and didn't make sense to him. He wanted to find out who Jesus was when he lived. He wasn't so interested in what happened to him after he died. He ended his Bible with these words, There laid they Jesus, and a great stone was put to the door of the sepulcher, and they departed. What interested him wasn't what happened after, but how Jesus lived. Mahatma Gandhi brought together many kinds of religion, many ideas that he picked up along the way. He studied for law in Great Britain, and there the theosophists were uh, thriving. So he put a little theosophy in his ideas, and he was influenced by the Christian idealism of Tolstoy. And Henry David Thoreau's natural theology influenced him. 
And when he had something that made sense to him that he wanted to take into the world, his next place to be was South Africa, where he put those things into motion and began his work uh, fighting against the rule of the British Empire. Gandhi, Jefferson, and Emerson, too, all took from the great religious traditions that resonated for them. Jefferson once said, were I free to be the founder of a new sect, I would call it apiarians, and after the example of the bee, advise them to extract the honey of every sect. However attractive that idea may be, there are hazards in thinking of all religions as something that you can just take a, a little bit out of and go on the way a bee does. One danger is that you trivialize the central truths of that religion by not seeing their complexities and how it is to practice those central beliefs in, in religion. They may sound good, but put into practice, it might be more challenging than you realize. Or you may find a religion, particularly religions of the East, exotic and think that they, they would fit us when actually we're Westerners. And if we don't go deeply enough into those religions, we're just tasting them and moving on. Another hazard is that we will merely know about religions, become knowledgeable, but not take them into ourselves at all. We had a program, I think it still exists, in our churches called the Church Across the Street, where we took our young people in mid-school, mid-age, middle school, I think, um, to visit the other churches in our communities. Not just churches, but uh, synagogue, the, te the Jewish temple, all, as most that we could find. And I think it, it was a wonderful program in a lot of ways. We weren't trying to tempt our kids to go to some other religion, but we were trying to develop spiritual literacy, which is so lacking in Americans, where we really know about different religions. And unless we do, it's hard to know um, how what parts of them might interest us, what values what practices. Um, spiritual literacy is essential if we want to broaden and deepen the search for our own truth. There's a story of from Hasidic Judaism of a rabbi who lived in Krakow, and he had a dream, three dreams in a row, in which an angel came to him and said that he should go... Um, looking for a treasure under um, under a hearth or in front of the hearth, and it would be in another town. So he went to that city, and he talked to a sentinel there and told him why he was there. And the, the sentinel said, Oh, I've had a dream like that too, where an angel said that I should go to Krakow and look under the hearthstone, and there I would find a treasure. Well, the rabbi thought, hmm, maybe um, 
I should go home and look. And so he looked under the hearthstone, dug up in the front of, in the middle of the room. And sure enough, under his own hearthstone, he found a treasure. It has a great lesson for us about thinking it's always better somewhere else. <clears throat> when Dick and I were first, uh, my first husband and I found Unitarian you know, Universalism, we were so anxious to know as much as we could find out about it. And we were attending classes and anything that happened at church, we wanted to be there and learn more. And they, they were offering a class called Finding the Self. It was about uh, Freud and Jung and other psychologists and philosophers, a series of films. And we signed up. Our son, Rich, was old enough by the time that he could stay with his two younger siblings. So we left him as our sitter for the night. And as it happened, a close friend called. She told me later. She had called our house, and Rich had answered. She asked if we were home. And she said, no, they're out tonight. They're out finding themselves. I think only a child could make our intentions sound so silly. But taken seriously, that is what we were doing. That's what we do as we're looking for our way in the world. What resonates with our inner self? What is true? What's honest? Um, what can we set, be in our relationships that is open and honestly who we are? To speak our own truth. Sometimes it takes a lifetime to learn that. What I've appreciated over the 50 years that I've been a Unitarian Universalist is the, the support, the challenges, the stimulation, and the freedom that it's given me to find my own way. I lived in White Rock for a couple of years, and during that time I became enthralled with Sankali, and I would go there. It wasn't very developed at the time. You could just easily go there any time and be alone, usually. And I would sit on the cliff edges, up, up high on the backside, after you've gone through the little ruins. And sitting there, I was eye level with where the birds would fly by, and looking down across this great valley and under this beautiful sky. And I found there something that I incorporated in my life that changed me. It really became a very important part of who I am now. I think of it as becoming right-sized. I think I felt very little at that time in my life, not very important in the world or valuable, not very valuable. And sitting there in this vastness, I was able to get an image of myself as certainly not the most important thing, but an important part of the whole landscape. And also to, um, to realize at the same time how little I am in the scheme of things, and also how significant. 
And I've never lost that. I always, when I even just think of the big skies of New Mexico, the beautiful skies, I have that feeling come back of, of how good it is to feel right-sized. I, I also found being there that I wanted to contribute to the whole, that this good life that I've been given, this accident maybe of being, that I wanted to give back to this beautiful world. I think that was part of my impetus to go to seminary. In Adrian Rich's words, I have always meant so much to me. I thought she, using the uh, metaphor of learning to play the piano was a great one. I never learned to play the piano. But I know you have to take a lot of lessons. I dropped out too early. And at times we are forced to begin in the hardest movement before we've hardly begun. It happens to all of us. Crises come. We lose a job. A child dies. We become widowed. A pandemic arrives and stays way too long. We live in oppressive circumstances. Or we find ourselves in the battlefield on the other side of the world. You fill in what I haven't listed, the trials thrust upon us, every one of us. Anywhere in the world, the same is true. We build a tower of beliefs and understandings in which we live. It serves us well until one day the plane crashes into it or the foundation is shaken by circumstances we could not have imagined. We ask ourselves if who we thought we were can handle the reality before us. It's moments like this that test the premises we've clung to. Times like this test our faith and assumptions. That's when we've we turn to what we've been able to boil down, the core of our beliefs. What is it that stands up under the test? And also when we grasp for answers to new questions. As we grow older, we find ourselves asking the meaning of our lives. What has our life added up to? We may read the obituaries in the newspaper and wonder what they'll say about us. The truth is we see, uh, as that most people think, it'll be the list of their activities, what they've contributed to society. But I find when I work with a family after someone has died, it's really the little stories that seem to define the person the most. Once I recall meeting with a family of about five or six people, the grandmother of the family had died. And it was they wanted to make it clear that one of the important things she did in her life was take care of her grandchildren while her their parents worked. And she had been quite an indulgent grandmother. They had lots of stories about her. Uh, everyone became really energized when they mentioned that she was a particularly good nurse when they were ill. And one child said, I remember when I was ill that she would let me wear her chenille bathrobe. 
And another girl said, oh, me too. And the boy said, um, when uh, I didn't know that she let you wear the chenille bathrobe, I thought that was just for me because I got to wear it too. And then he said, and also wasn't it wonderful the little silver bell to ring when we needed something. And the girl said, what? We never had a silver bell. We always suspected she liked the boys the best. This woman had lived 80 years, and there were many accomplishments listed in her biography. But it was the way that she made children feel special that seemed to be the the strongest part of her legacy. It makes us wonder what essential sweetness will be remembered when we are gone. Will it be the size of our bank account or how many times we worked overtime at the office? Or will it be something we don't even know that meant a great deal to someone in our lives? Howard Thurman once said, there is a quiet courage that comes from an inward spring of confidence in the meaning and confidence and significance of life. Such courage is an underground river flowing far beneath the shifting events of one's experience, keeping alive a thousand little springs of action. When all is said and done, what does it matter what we say we believe if it isn't manifest in our lives? Thomas Jefferson said it is our lives and not our words that count in our lives. But he had a little trouble there himself because he was a great advocate for prohibition. He wanted the states to declare slavery illegal while he had 600 slaves himself that he could have freed. So it's a little hard to reconcile those two parts of Jefferson. We are thinking people. Unitarian Universalists. We won't allow nonsense to be preached to us, but at the same time, we are feeling caring people. I wrote a poem some time ago that I'd like to share with you. It has it's, it talks about my own spiritual journey. It starts with my mother-in-law, who put great pressure on me to become Christian. In fact, because I was a Unitarian Universalist and she said that we were just a cult and that I would go to hell because I hadn't been saved, um, she wouldn't come to our wedding when Bob and I were married, which always was sad to me. She gave me a Bible for our first Christmas. That's in this poem. It's called A Matter of Faith. Cleaning bookshelves, I find seven Bibles not opened in years. I cull all but one, including the one given me as a gift that first Christmas by my mother-in-law, who had hopes the Red River of non-belief would open and I might cross to Zion. We never talked religions. It was too dangerous. But if we had, I might have testified to my husband's mother that my faith has been hard won 
forged by the heat of human trials, disappointments, failures, regrets. Call them sins if you want, and losses aplenty to scrape me clean-boned, ready for a juicy faith, setting aside what I had learned by rote. Salamander and foxglove, twitters of spring, bleakest winter, both light and dark, an elaborate interweaving of threads. Nowhere to hide, nowhere to go, only this. Smallest flee to flee to far-flung stars, woven into one tapestry, animated by one silent breath. Constant, indestructible. I say it will not let us go. For want of a better way to say it, it will not let us go. And for want of a better word, I call it love.